Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Jill Zarnowitz and Mark Huff. Uh, it's August 26, 2022. We're at Stag Hollow in Yamhill. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, and the first question to get things rolling is why wine? Why wine? Why wine? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, I grew up, my parents drank wine. And uh, I, I grew up in San Diego. And um, they would go down to, um, when I was a teenager, to uh, a tasting room, I guess it was, called Brookside. I think they're still around. And um, buy their cheap wine. (laughs) (laughs) And um, then I'll I'll just skip ahead. Um, I went up, wound up in uh, Seattle at the University of Washington doing my master's, and I met Mark. And... Uh, he was making beer at the time, homemaking beer, and uh, he f- he found so I had wine, and he drank with the wine, and he decided that it was uh, better for him than beer, and um, and so being a scientist, then he wanted to start making wine <laughs> eventually, <laughs> but um, but that's that's how we got originally into wine. And uh, I think that anything you want to add on that? Sure, why not? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, actually, the simple answer, without a lot of stories, would be just shared passions mm-hmm. with, with wine and uh, enjoying food, uh, enjoying the good life. Uh, but that probably doesn't make as good a story as, as you and I meeting and, uh, and telling the details, does it? <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, uh, it, it was kind of an interesting journey. Uh, so, uh, at the uh, where we got started with wine, uh, I, I, let me go back to, to Jill mentioned her family. I'll mention my family. My family uh, was from the East Coast and grew up in the Hudson Valley. And at that time, really the only grape or winemaking region. Uh, it was in the uh, the Finger Lakes, mm-hmm. and the and the Finger Lakes at that time was focused on Concord grapes, uh, just wretched sweet wines made by Manischewitz, or at least popularized by Manischewitz, enough to to scare anybody away from wine <laughs> in, in their youth or or even adult life, uh, and so they were more likely to have a you know a gin and tonic with dinner than wine. Whereas with Jill, she grew up in in California, where wine was readily accessible, part of the culture, uh, and so it was sort of Jill bringing me into her family traditions than uh, than me really bringing anything to the table on the wine end. But it certainly was a uh, a light bulb moment uh, when uh, when we started uh, enjoying wines together. It was like. Uh, I never looked back on making beer again. Uh, it was just and the funniest part of the story is that uh, that that wine, the beer, actually didn't really agree with me, but I didn't really understand it until I was in my 
40 plus years later that I'm gluten sensitive. And, and beer actually ended up, sort of pushed me in the direction of really enjoying wine a lot more. Um, so yeah, and, and we went through um, many, many years at uh, the University of Washington uh, just uh, enjoying uh, wine, food together, uh, and, and we had some access to just some remarkable, remarkable wines back then, especially we really loved Italian wines, mm -hmm. and, and we had access to especially Piedmont wines. There was a, there was a wine place that just had these amazing P uh, Piedmont wines dating back 15, 20 years. It just You could buy them for a song on a graduate student's budget. Remember them? Yeah, the you know, the the, uh, the Gattinaras and mm -hmm. the the Gemmes and the Cezanos and all that stuff that we eventually visited later on. Yeah, and so that sort of that gradual. Uh, you ask the question of like, is you know, is there any moment? Well, there isn't any really moment. It's just sort of like an evolution over time of of uh, of us in, in enjoying mm -hmm. wine together. Uh, but we certainly had some uh, some. Uh, moments that made uh, the uh, uh, kind of the, the, the jumps, the jumps. I think I think 1984 was probably the year. Uh, you know, we went to California together uh, mm -hmm. to you know. Yeah, yeah, we toured California and Snow, and yeah. uh, went through Napa and Sonoma and tasted wines there. Of course, then all yeah, we were crazy. We, were, we we put we had tasting notes in the tasting room. We were writing about every wine. Yeah, <laughs> way back then. And we were camping out. <laughs> camping out. Yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah, uh, heading down to San Diego and visit my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that was that certainly was uh, some some big moments. And uh, see, uh, um, oh, eighty four. Yeah, eighty four was the first year that we started buying grapes, <clears throat> and and we bought two gra grapes from two two uh, two sources. Uh, one was from California, uh, uh, which was a, a group that had, grew out of Berkeley that had this great access. Back then, the early days, I mean, people hardly knew anything about California wines. And they had access to some of the best vineyards, and so we were able to bring up grapes here. They're called Wine and the People. Wine and the People. Uh, <laughs> and, and they really got a lot of kind of home winemakers going because they just, and, and it gave you confidence because you had really, really good grapes. <laughs> and, uh, and we actually, uh, one, uh, one of the, we had Cabernet, Merlot, Zin. Do we have any other varieties from California that year? No, those were the three. Yeah. Yeah. And we recently had one of those 84 cabs that we made and it was still tasting really good, mm -hmm. <laughs> like stunning. Uh, <laughs> So, um, and then the other source of grapes that year, which is complete opposite, which is really hilarious, was a guy named Chris Upchurch. Now, anybody who knows anything about uh, Washington wines, uh, he started uh, Delisle. And Delisle is like a world famous winery. But this is back before. He was in his home winemaking phase too. And he was helping out a, 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 a brew shop to bring in grapes from eastern Washington. And uh, what makes 84 so interesting is that it was a fantastic year in California. And it is the most legendary year 
of being the worst vintage ever in Oregon. Anybody, any of the old timers who were around in that will go, oh my gosh, 84. And in fact, um, I recently saw um, Joel Myers, who was the, 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 uh, the vineyard manager for Irie back in that, that time period. And, and we were talking about climate. I saw him down at the, the, the McMinnville uh, post office. And, uh, and we kind of started talking about 84 because this year had this really weird spring. And he says, oh, God, yeah. Uh, boy, uh, the, the, yeah, we gave up in early November and just brought the grapes in. Uh, you know, winter had started, and 18 bricks is about all we could get out of the grapes. It, it was a, it was an amazing year. Well, Eastern Washington had a slightly different problem. They got worried about frost, and so um, Upchurch brought all these grapes over before that. I thought a frost was going to really knock everything back, and these things were just awful, awful just the most acidic. <laughs> Uh, you could you could put a hole in concrete with the acid that these things had. We ended up all throwing them all out. And we, you no, know, we, we didn't. We made wine. Well, we made wine, but we eventually threw the, the wine Riesling, out. Yeah. <laughs> it was Riesling, and it was Riesling. I think we had some Sauv Blanc and some Chardonnay. Yeah, uh, and we, we tried it years later, thinking it would have mellowed. Yeah, by mellowed then. like a Chablis. No way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. You think yeah. we would have given up at that point? Uh, but. But uh, yeah, we went back to the well in uh, in '85 and, and bought mm -hmm. some more grapes. But but '85 was a big year. It was the year we decided to get married. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And uh, and you had come down to Vancouver to be uh, uh, you kind of breaking the glass ceiling in the the natural resource field for fish and wildlife agencies, and you were the regional uh, wildlife, wildlife biologist. Wild. Yeah. For right. the for and. Uh, well, in '85 we made. The wine up in Bellingham yeah, at my dad's in my dad's basement. And '84 too. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, was yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, both yeah. those years. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and he, they were very accommodating to let us use their nice cold basement in Bellingham to, to make wine. But he likes to drink wine. Well, he likes though. to drink wine too, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, he made homebrew, so he, he it was part of sort of his. Uh, uh, yeah. con concept of uh, this is an acceptable behavior in our basement. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, we, we, we never got any more Washington grapes after that. Uh, although we were kind of curious about Washington as being a place to, to maybe even uh, buy some land, but we never really pursued it too, too much. No, we bought uh, a quarter acre on a house. Yeah, we bought a. Uh, and planted grapes there, which allowed us to get a uh, farm services loan yeah. to buy this land. Yeah, because um, we had grown grapes. Yeah, right. <laughs> a quarter acre, <laughs> <laughs> and they were about this high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, in '85 we uh, we got married at, at at Mount Rainier, and then uh, uh, up in the in the national park, and then we. Uh, but I think one of the really important kind of part of the story of kind of growing the passion for wine is that uh, we have been enjoying Italian wines, especially the Piedmont and, and Rioja, the Tempranillos. And so we decided to go on our honeymoon to those two areas and bicycle uh, for three plus weeks. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that was a really important moment because it actually ended up uh, influencing some decisions we made later on what varieties we actually planted here, uh, and that passion for those for those wine regions has always continued. Uh, uh, we really do like that, which just puts us kind of in a more 
uh, kind of a diverse thought process uh, compared to more of the Pinot-centric, Pinot-Gris-centric. Uh, we've always been interested in, in kind of a broader base of, of grape varieties. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to say about uh, touring Italy? Uh, yeah, uh, well, <clears throat> yeah, we landed in Milan and uh, of course we were exhausted, but we, um, so we put our bikes together. We had shipped our bikes over there and they're the, you know, the speed type bikes, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the touring, speeds, yeah. touring bikes. And, and we, were, we were putting them together in the airport and all these Italians were standing around men watching <laughs> me put my bike together. Yeah, they and were just like fascinated like a, a woman putting her bicycle yeah, together. Yeah, it to be, seemed to be kind of interesting to them. And then, then we went on this horrendous road to, um, to get to... Uh, Rona? Yeah. The first Arona near yeah, the lakes and the Lake District, um, and there was no room for bikes on that road basically, and there was trucks going by, and so we were, uh, we had two different philosophies. Mark jumped off his bike every time a truck went by and went into the ditch, <laughs> and I just hunkered down and sped on, and uh, sometimes two trucks were passing, you know, one going one oh, way God, and one the other, and. Uh, so I got to the end of the road, and uh, there was a cafe or something with a parking lot, and I just waited and waited and waited. And I thought, oh, God, I'm already a widow. <laughs> and slowly, then he comes, truck, you know, slowly pedaling down the road. And I just couldn't take the traffic. It was just, yeah. it was too much. He was a crazy Italian driver. Me, probably. Yeah, right. So from, that yeah. was a learning experience because that influenced how we went about bicycling for the rest of the yeah. trip. Because then we went to the, you know, we got this map of the Piedmont, and it was a bicycle touring map, and it had color codes for uh, the main highways, the secondary highways, and the less traveled highways. And what we noted was that all the valleys were the high traveled, and so it was up on the ridges, mm -hmm. kind of following the ridges were the less traveled, and so we, we kind of then took the hard route <laughs> and just kind of followed these mountainous trails uh, all over the place, uh, uh, trying to get from point A to point B, yeah. but out, try to stay out of the valleys. But you had to watch, you could hear the sports cars coming, because yeah. they, were, they were going as fast as they could up those hills. But, uh, Oh my, yeah. But yeah. But yeah, I think I think what we got out of that trip was um, just sort of the the uh, the uh, the what, kind of how wine was woven into the culture, mm -hmm. uh, and how how it really was. You know, it wasn't wine and, or food or anything like that. It wasn't separate. It was all kind of together, and and people uh, really would see wine as just sort of a beverage of life, and. Uh, and that, that has always stuck with us. Mm -hmm. it, it was, uh, and, it, and it, one grape variety over there that was really important towards food and wine, which is a little bit more obscure of the Piedmontese grape varieties, is Dolcetto. Uh, all the press is about Nebbiolo, a little bit about Barbera. It's not much about Dolcetto. But if you go into there, you go into somebody's home or a trattoria, this is the wine of food. And, and that really impressed us, and we kind of put that into our kind of our brains and I said, hey, uh, if we ever get that vineyard, uh, let's, let's plant some Dolcetto. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, we didn't waste any time when we finally got the land. Uh, that was one of the first varieties we 
but but the, but the interesting part was no nurseries. You couldn't go out and buy dolcetto and, and plant it or get cuttings from it. We had to actually specifically get them out of the research block down at OSU and get about uh, 15 or 20 cuttings and start a mother block and then plant it and plant it and plant it. But uh, I'm going to head to the story here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> We're still back at 85. Yeah. I uh, got back from the, the, the honeymoon and uh, I, I guess... I, I want to go further back than that because okay. I did a lot of things that you didn't do. Yeah, you were in Italy. Uh, uh, yeah. She was more of a world traveler than I was, so she brought a lot to the table. So you can talk about your your, your, <laughs> your things you did in, in Italy and, and maybe your, your adventures in Europe. Before or even that, we mm -hmm. can back up even before you met. I'm curious about sort of how you each got to the University of Washington and, oh, and, and, pre, and pre wine careers. So mm -hmm. why don't you start there and take a, and take us up sure. to, like in, into that? Yeah. Birds. Well, I was <laughs> I was I was a uh, growing up in San Diego. I was there as things were developing, and so we used to, as kids we'd play in the, all these vacant lots, and we I rode horses that you know. There were neighborhood horses, and we were about seven miles from downtown. And by the time I was a teenager, I just wanted to get out of there. It had developed too much. It had smog now. It, didn't, it used to get smog from L.A., but mm -hmm. it had its own. So a friend of mine and I, we, we went to Cal State Hayward for one year. We didn't like the Bay Area. So then we—she she, um, looked up— other schools, and we wound up in Bellingham. And I went there for a couple of years, and then I decided that I was tired of college. I, my degrees kept changing, and uh, from archaeology at San Diego State to so to anthropology at Cal State Hayward to sociology, which I didn't like, and then I went into environmental studies at, up at Western, um, which was Huxley College yeah. at the time, and. So I, I moved to Alaska and spent a year in Alaska working in a fish cannery and um, just enjoying myself going winter camping and things like that. And then um, my I, then I came down and I lived in Idaho. My parents had some property and I built a little hut for myself. and. Uh, and then a friend of mine, my friend that I moved up to Bellingham with, said she was going to do an um, internship at uh, College of the, of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, or Bahaba, as they pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I decided, well, yeah, I'd like to see Maine. So I went with her to Maine and a couple other friends and lived there for a few months. And then we toured back across the country, went to Mexico, where her half her family was, and then came back and uh, came back to Bellingham and then spent a year getting my degree in environmental studies. And um, at that point, I wanted to work on a study of wolves in Europe. And so I decided that that's probably going to be Sweden or Norway, which sounded like a lot of fun. And uh, turned out it was Italy. There was that was the only study of wolves in Europe, and so I wrote to them and got a. Um, they said, "Yeah, sure, come." And so I worked on their <laughs> wolf study for about four months, uh, driving around the the hills in the Apennines, where there was a hundred wolves that they had radio collared and the Brutzi. Trying to, yeah, in the Brutzi area. Mm -hmm. 
and and that's where I got really introduced to the Italian wine culture because we would go the, there was a um, another the Italian researcher there of course luckily they all spoke English but I did learn Italian <laughs> <laughs> I was just getting good at it when I left but um, there was a researcher there he his family lived nearby and um, and so he you know in the mornings we'd go out and you know have a just uh, a focaccia for breakfast and in the afternoons we'd go to some cafe and you know get our carafe of wine and then we'd go get a carafe of wine and bring it back to the, the house where we were we were staying and uh, so it was just it was really fun and doing you know like the polenta f feasts that they had where they spread this polenta on these huge tables and everybody has to eat to the middle <laughs> to, to get the, the sausages and stuff that are in the middle and uh, so just getting introduced to that culture um, eventually my friend and I she she had gone to Scotland and we traveled Europe and then um, and then I came back and um, I worked got uh, a summer fall job of working studying spotted owls and cavity nesting birds like woodpeckers and those type of birds and um, at the Darrington district up in Bellingham or uh, Washington and from that I decided to get a master's at University of Washington in wildlife science and so um, I went there and um, Went for a couple years, met Mark there, but he was uh, not available, <laughs> and I wasn't available. Um, and then I went to Costa Rica with the boyfriend I was with at the time, and he was studying bats, uh, fruit-eating bats, and going to study that for his, his PhD. And so I helped him on his study, and then I did uh, some small bat studies on making I built a cage a big cage and then we'd capture these bats in mist nets and then I'd put them in the cage and they would I'd hang these fruit from the top of the cage <laughs> and see which ones they ate and most of them didn't like living in the cage at all so we'd let them go pretty quick but um, and then I I came back and uh, my boyfriend and I broke up and and Mark was available and we met on a bus in Seattle, yeah, I had to finish my master's thesis. I yeah, couldn't do that. We were both working on birds at the time. Yeah. Well, I had worked. Yeah, you helped me. Yeah. He helped me do some of his study plots, and I helped him. Yeah. We were both on the Olympic Peninsula. Yeah. She was in the National Forest, and I was in the National Park. And and these, you know, kind of, you know, that just that's kind of sort of the simple part of it. But really, these are brutally difficult landscapes to work in. It's raining all the time, um, mm -hmm. steep slopes, uh, and we're it's, so it's kind of a shared experience. Stepping on yellow jackets. Yeah, yes. just, uh, <laughs> you know, your shins are just always have bruises all over from hitting logs, and and then you know each of us had some of us each we both had plots in old growth forests, which mm -hmm. were just these sort of charming, beautiful places that you could walk you, through. You could, you could walk through until you hit you saw a gigantic log that you had to crawl <laughs> over. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's kind of that shared experience, uh, which then led to 
the shared experience in wine and all that stuff. But, mm -hmm. um, so how about if I get us to the, to sure. the point where we we shared experience on birds? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I uh, by the time I had finished either uh, freshman in high school or I mean freshman in college. I, I had a lot of uh, several, a lot of travel experience in the U.S., whereas Jill was a little bit more international, and and I, I think I had been to just about every state at that point except for Hawaii and uh, Alaska, which you couldn't drive to easily. <laughs> um, and and I, I kind of a national park junkie, and 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 I had a bunch of friends that we would go to all these national parks in the summertime and visiting Yellowstone and Grand uh, Canyon and. Teton and uh, a bunch of the obscure ones all the way up to Banff in Canada and, and it was a great time and it actually that was a very important thing because I ended up working for the National Park Service uh, later in my career and uh, but during that uh, kind of that exploratory stage is sort of uh, just more and more getting uh, uh, enthused about nature which is what you were also mm -hmm. enthused about so that kind of the crossroad there and my parents, it was really funny, they had more of a tradition my dad was a businessman, you know, they, they thought this whole thing about interest in nature and birds was just sort of something in passing, you know, the kid will get through this again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it wasn't, because uh, when I was an undergraduate, I, I had th two other colleagues who ended up both in careers with uh, with uh, in, na in, in nature, studying, studying birds or uh, marine mammals or, or uh, um, you know, raptors, and, and we spent uh, every possible available time at, uh, at our undergraduate just going out and going bird watching or just spending time in nature on the Appalachian Trail. And, uh, and that sort of uh, made me shift my career from business, which I started in, to, uh, to biology to forestry environmental studies to ecology, which uh, I had finished up studies at Duke and then was in charge of a, uh, a forest protection program uh, for the state of Maryland in, in terms of in charge of all their insect disease forest situation. I said, no, nah, I don't want to stay here for the rest of my life. I'd already gotten the bug about coming out west. And <laughs> I thought, well, I need to get out there. And the only way I could do is come back to graduate school. It was kind of a stupid way to go back to graduate school, but that, that's that's what I did. And perpetual that, student. Yeah, as perpetual student was kind of inviting, especially in that, that era in the 70s. You know, everybody spent a lot of time. You could go, you could live on a lot less then. You know, yeah. it, was, it, it, was, it was easier. <laughs> uh, you don't really get into much a lot of debt back then. Uh, and uh, and so that's that's what led me to the University of Washington. I came out, uh, hooked up with a guy who was uh, uh, working for the National Park Service and, and studying birds. Uh, I was studying birds in relative to fires, and uh, Jill was uh, studying birds relative to... Uh, cavity nesting. Cavity bird. nesting birds relative to kind of forest succession. Yeah. Uh, some of them cut areas and some of them not cut areas. And, and so that kind of led us to, you know, just have these mutual interests that we, um, we, we just sort of shared and, and mm -hmm. kind of grew from there mm -hmm. into wine, into <laughs> <laughs> and, and other things and, and eventually getting married. And uh, yeah, that brings it back to 1985, doesn't it? Anyone, anything you want to share? Of, uh, because 85, actually, uh, I had a thought here that, that 85 was pretty important because it kind of, bring, it kind of begins to fold in the walls. Yeah. 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 So, so '85, you were you were uh, we were living in Clark County, just north of Portland there, and um, uh, and we joined this 
fledgling new group that was forming a wine tasting group. I mean, that's pretty unusual for the for the mid '80s in Vancouver. In Vancouver, yeah. they were based. They call they're called the Columbia Willamette. And Jill, being the kind of person who likes to really take charge, she became president <laughs> of it. And uh, and I um, I was just really excited about uh, the the tasting. So actually, I took charge for almost ten years of organizing their tastings, <laughs> and um, and. Uh, and, and th those those were a real educational moment mm -hmm. for us. So it's kind of another kind of bonding, but learning along the way, is we would have these tastings like we would pick a village like Pomard in in back when you could afford Burgundies, and we would do eight to ten Pomards in the evening, and then we'd move to the next village, move to the next village. I mean, we need to kind of intensively look at that and try to understand it, uh, and we do them a couple times a month. Uh, it was it was a blast, and mm -hmm. it really. It really honed us in on the flavors of the world, and we weren't just doing Pinot Noir. We were doing Italy. We were doing Bordeaux, uh, and the, you know the list goes on and on. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. And through that club, so the kind of more important part was through that club, we met um, Roy and Betty Wall, who would who would who lived out here, yeah. just up the road. And they would go all the way to Vancouver to come to these tastings. It's going to show you how rare it is to have that kind of opportunity to really taste some good wine and enjoy it with other people. And uh, and then we got hooked up into uh, Roy and Betty through uh, the fact that they they said, "Oh yeah, we sell grapes to home home winemakers." Now at that point, we had been just buying the California and walked away from Washington, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and. We never looked back after that. Uh, no. Yeah, we just said, "Well, this sounds really interesting." Being able to to actually go out in the vineyard, be be pick the grapes, uh, and uh, be involved. And then there was a whole. Then we discovered there's a whole cadre of home winemakers that were uh, were involved with the walls. They sold. Uh, there were a lot of people in the West Side Wine Club out of Beaverton, who who I think uh, Erath and Ponzi got started. That group, and then it had evolved over time. But I know Scott Shaw came out here from uh, Raptor Ridge. There's a long list of folks that kind of were just in this little neighborhood here. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and we would come out and uh, do the netting parties. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. back then you know they got before, free labor. <laughs> yeah, free labor before climate. Well, they had wine and food. That was yeah, fun. Yeah, they they <laughs> definitely had great food. Yeah, yeah uh, but this is back before climate change really took hold. I mean, all the harvests back then were in October. And the birds would have arrived by then, and it was a big battle. And they put up netting every year, uh, and so we would help them with that. And then we'd get the grapes, and we started making wine. And we made wine from their vineyard up until ours went commercial, uh, right up until 1993. So there was a real learning mm -hmm. process. Oh, one of the more important parts of that was the um, was the uh, the experimental block. Uh, OSU yeah. had planted. One of the first experimental clonal trial blocks in the Wall Vineyard because they're one of the earlier vineyards, and and uh, Roy Roy and Betty said, you know that that block's a pain in the neck to us because all different clones ripen at different times, and it's hard to kind of sell it to a winemaker. So they just they let us loose mm -hmm. in, in that uh, clonal block, and. That was a huge learning curve because we made individual lots from each one of those clones, and this was all the early stuff 
uh, all the California, this is before Dijon clones. This is, this is the California clones and some really interesting oddball clones that we eventually planted some mm -hmm. here, but the one that significantly we planted the most that we really, really like was an Alsatian clone called Colmar 538. And we still have about 300 vines out there. Some of the older ones we planted in 1990 are, you know, they've, they've gone by the wayside, uh, uh, self-rooted. Uh, but um, yeah, and, and some Spanish clones, the Bebe clone, mm -hmm. uh, we had that out there. Uh, oh gosh, I, you know, there was just a whole bunch, I can't remember. But anyway, we had all the individual blocks, uh, uh, batches, and we could then see from those batches what are the attributes of these different clones in small lots, uh, how, how, um, how they might be blended together. So like Pomard was the big thing, Pomard and Badensville, but mostly Pomard. And, and Roy and Betty Will had a lot of Pomard. And so we would kind of use the Pomard as the base and then play with all the other clones and mix blending it with, with Pomard. Uh, yeah, we we did mm -hmm. that for for uh, for a long time, and that was that was really an interesting learning curve for us. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything else about '85 that, that. But well, they told us that this property was for sale. Well, that's that that's '80. Not '85. That was '80. That was '88. '88, '89. Yeah. But actually, yeah, they told 89. us this property was for sale. And also something else happened right at that time period that was just uh, like really... Big change. Yeah, that just pushed us in the side and said, you've got to do this. Mm -hmm. You've got to go buy the land. No matter, even if you're in your 30s, you've got to go buy the land. And that was the, the Oregon wine industry at that time had been uh, working very hard to up their profile worldwide especially at least in the US, and trying to get a, a French winemaker to come here. And they've been really trying hard. And they finally got Domaine Drawn to come in. And uh, I think they bought the property in 88 and started building a winery in 89. And we just looked at each other and went, this industry is about to change. Huge. It's, it's not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, no matter what, let's go get the land now. And, and you know the land, the concept of land, it, it was really important. The land is actually as important, and probably more important than the wine. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can see here we have this beautiful uh, uh, ten-acre woodland behind us. When we when we we heard this property came available, it wasn't just a place where you can grow fantastic grapes for wine, but it had this this sort of this wildlife component. That, uh, that really appealed to us because mm -hmm. we have this biologist wildlife uh, background. And, uh, and it really has proven to be kind of our hidden treasure. I mean, we've had bobcats in here, we've had foxes nesting and, uh, or denning, and uh, we've had over 115 species of birds that we've identified. And it's just been a lot of fun uh, mm -hmm. having um, that treasure as uh, it juxtapositioned sort of from a biodiversity perspective uh, right next to to the vineyard and uh, mm -hmm. and I, I'll, I'll, I, I'm talking way too much so I'm gonna let Jill <laughs> talk about maybe the first years when we were kind of planting and your folks were helping us and we had no road and all that kind of it was quite a struggle <laughs> yeah yeah we bought it in 89 and um, there was a small 
uh, there was a well already on the property. Somebody had drilled the well, <clears throat> the well who was looking to buy it, and it didn't produce enough water, so they backed out. And uh, it was for sale by owner, so we we got it at a, a great price. Um, and yeah, and about an eighty, like the winter of, uh, or the. December, January, uh, Feb, uh, November of 89, and then we started planting. We got cuttings from the walls and... Um, and ivory. Huh? And ivory. And ivory at the same time. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. from Muscat. Yeah, we... Why and Pino? Yeah. We knew, we knew David um, Glett, and, and then we liked Muscat wines, mm -hmm. and he loved West Muscat wines, so we got... Uh, our first Muscat Ottenel from him. And plus, we went to Canelli when we went to, to Italy, too. <laughs> which, yes. That's a whole other story. Yes. Canelli is the, Muscat Canelli is the, the town of Canelli. Yeah, is, is, but you were sick then. No, you I was didn't. sick. <laughs> <laughs> I got food poisoning. Yeah. Anyway, so so we we uh, had these these cuttings, and um, and we, well, what we first started doing is we had to root them. So, we had brought in some sawdust, but the, there was just a kind of a track there, and it was really muddy. And we had to start from the county road, Blackburn Road, and come this way. So we had one of these big wooden carts that you pull. We didn't have a tractor or ATV or anything. <laughs> and we, um, I have this picture of my Mark and my father kind of leaning over this thing that they've been trying to pull through the mud <laughs> full of sawdust and cuttings. And uh, we eventually got it to a place where we could start the cuttings. And uh, we didn't plant that year, obviously. The next year we planted uh, when they were rooted and we had some friends come out and help. And, um, and we had to run a generator for the, the water because we had no electricity here. It was pretty, pretty primitive. Yeah, it was very primitive. But we were dedicated. And, and the top of it all, uh, were we still in, in Vancouver at that point? We had, um, yeah, I think we might have been. We moved yeah, to so Lafayette. We're <laughs> yeah, we, moved, we rented a house from in Lafayette um, for. 1990. Here we were able to come here more often and uh, manage the grapes, and the building of the house too. And then we got a contractor mm. to build the house, and um, so we then we got the road built here. We got electricity in. We got, you know, the septic and and built um, dug a well up there. So you know, it had been a sheep farm before us. Before that, it had been a cherry farm. Before that, it had been a prune farm. Before that, it was walnut. And there's, there's still wild cherries out here, feral, yeah. feral cherries, and and plums. And yeah, there's feral prunes, and there's feral apples, and there's <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, yeah. walnut trees popping up all the time. Mm -hmm. But. Um, yeah, so it had the, the, the history, basically, of Yamhill, of the, the type of uh, 
agriculture that kind of swept through the different eras uh, in this in this property. Yeah, that's a that's a, probably a, a little bit of a historical property in the sense that you know the house out by the row is probably mm -hmm. people told us it was dated maybe to the 1920s, 20s. but we found another homestead uh, on one of the flats down there in, in yeah. the vineyard uh, that. Uh, we found, you know, pieces of potbelly stove and stuff like that. So it probably dated way before that other house that was built in, yeah. the, in the 1920s. And how we found the potbelly stove is we were drilling, <laughs> drilling. a um, a hole for the grapes or the, or the fence, I guess, and and it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> and so we're like, what is going on here? So we pull out the drill and then we dug and dug and, you know, had to dig for this front of the pot-bellied stove. And there was, yeah, it was right down on the, the flat there where we now have Tempranillo. And there's pottery. There was, they obviously had uh, put a pipe into where the pond is down there, where it was probably a spring, and um, eventually probably had electricity. There was some evidence of that, and it looked like it had all burned down. Um, we found some other, lots of square nails and big horseshoe, and you know all sorts of things that were yeah. historical. That was, and there's no evidence in the record of that being that might have been somebody's homestead back in the 1800s yeah. or early 1900s but yeah but the the what is we call a shed but at the very start of our driveway that's actually an old house mm -hmm. that um, when we moved here we've the there's a brick house at the start of the road and there was a elderly woman living in it and she had lived in that house that's at the front of our road and yeah. so we, there was history here. She's long gone now, but um, but yeah. So we we just kind of slowly planted the vineyard, um, talk about an the, acre at a time. The, the craziness of the high density vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask about. That. Yeah. Tell, tell me about. Well, that's pretty that's, nutty. That's your. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, in the travels to to, to Europe. Uh, it was it was evident that they planted things a little differently than what we had seen in California. California, mm -hmm. where these just gigantic, wide open rows that you could get a big John Deere down. Uh, there it was everything was narrow. The spacings were really narrow, and and uh, so and we just yeah, and, and we had known that Burgundy was like even narrower. Uh, they grew it like hedges, and you know we'd seen lots of pictures of that, and we thought, well, you know, these people have been doing this for like centuries um there must be something to this uh you know and what we you know we had heard from from uh, growers that uh, you know a little competition between the vines is is good for enhancing flavor development uh, the depth of the wines and so we uh we didn't waste any time we were one of the first uh in oregon well actually uh about the same time <laughs> that we had the idea, uh, we also had heard rumor that Domaine Durand came in and they did the same thing. They planted high density. I don't know whether they still do it anymore, but, uh, uh, and 
that we we knew that would probably take us on a journey that that we wouldn't have a lot of colleagues to interact with. Uh, you know, what would it? What kind of wines would it make? Uh, what are the, the challenges in the vineyard? We knew that it would be challenging from a um, managing things like mildew because the plants are really close together. It'd be a lot of hand labor. Be more expensive. Uh, you know, from business plan perspective. It wasn't very smart, was it? <laughs> but it made some great wines, but three, that's, that's another story. 3,000 3, vines per acre, 3,000 vines per acre, which was, uh, our neighbor across the street, bot. I think, was probably 500 or 800 vines per acre. Uh, and so we were yeah. you know, multiplying that by many fold. Uh, and uh, it, it looked pretty crazy at the time. And, and the, the, I think that was the thing that was even crazier is that we did this and we knew they did not have the same farm equipment as they had in Europe. We had, they had not brought the narrow tractors in yet. We were just kind of hoping when they would show up. So the only thing that we could do at that time was uh, there was a, a lot of it was managed uh, that Yamaha, bless their hearts, uh, for just a couple years had a uh, PTO-driven um, uh, ATV, and we could run all this equipment off of uh, off of that, and uh, you know it was kind of survival mode. And then till the till the tractor caught up, and I guess it was probably about five or six more years when they started bringing in the Kubotas, the, the Kubotas yeah. and the Carraros. Uh, they you know they, and some of the big names started looking at narrow tractors from Europe. But we we ended up buying an Italian tractor because that was one of the first ones that came in as the Carraros. And it's just really you know it, it, be, you know, it really says Europe when you look at it. It's just really <laughs> narrow and small. Uh, and uh, and that was our saving grace. I don't know if we've been able to expand much further what we were doing with the uh, with mm -hmm. the ATV at that point. Uh, it was pretty crazy to be committed to to narrow uh, spacing without the, the tractor. But we had hoped that it would catch up, mm -hmm. and and it did, mm -hmm. fortunately. Uh, and it really presented its own own sets of challenges over time for uh, for for kind of managing the grapes, uh, very labor intensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell me about the experience of once you had, once you started to install the vineyard, what were the challenges that were specific to you, especially as you mentioned, not having necessarily people you could bounce ideas off of or ask for help? Well, the first, the first big challenge was like, we are not as short as, uh, as uh, the, the French, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and and they, so they, they grow their hedge, but the fruiting wire's down here. And I had, yeah, I, there's no way I am going to bend over that much to, to harvest grapes. Mm -hmm. So uh, actually invented our own trellis design, uh, where the uh, the trellis, the fruiting wire is is up around belly height. Uh, the renewal cane is above the canopy, one or two 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 um, are above the canopy, and then the rest of the the uh, the, the grapes are or the shoots are grown down. Or at least there are uh, wires available to it. Uh, in some cases, they kind of just run wild if we don't get around to it. But the, 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 so that that it allowed us a, a very important back saving, mm -hmm. uh, and we could actually uh, you know have people that would be willing to to harvest the grapes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know how they do it in Italy. I guess they, they are, are in, in France. A lot of it is mechanically harvested. No, they still do a lot of hand mm -hmm. labor over there, but it is, it is kind of nutty how, how, uh, how low it is to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one way that we kind of got to, to, the, to the challenge. The other thing we were very worried about was the uh, um, 
you know, the vigor. Back then, there was a lot more rainfall, very cool springs. You have these cool springs, so just things are growing out of control. So we wanted to make sure that the vigor was, was, was controlled through not only tight spacing, but we kept, um, um, uh, we did no tilling, so we had a cover crop, mm -hmm. a year-round cover crop. Uh, and which we're really committed to today. I don't, I don't you know, there's the, kind of this industry standard is you, you, you uh, leave one row uh, with um, a cover crop and the other row you till and uh, we're much more into the no-till. This is dry land farming, uh, unlike a lot of the new developments happening now. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that was a big experiment to see how the plants responded to some of the way, the pressure points that we would provide to control the vigor. Uh, and it worked really well. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, you know, when climate change started to really roll in about four, 19, uh, 2014 and beyond, it would come a lot harder on the plants. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and I wouldn't recommend now that high density. Uh, for the record, uh, because of climate change. It worked well with the climate of the, the 80s and 90s, uh, but now it's, uh, it's too dense. And, and any new plantings that we've done, we've pulled back to about 2,300, 2,400 per, per, uh, vines per, per acre. And we go with two canes rather than one cane at the high density. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Our goal was to have, to intensify the flavors by stressing the vines and because at that time we believed Oregon was wet <laughs> so you stress the vines you have them all you know a meter apart and then 1.6 meter rows mm -hmm. and but every other row is a meter so we have two rows here meter apart and then the next row couple rows over our 1.6 meter and then you got another meter and then yeah. so it's it's a alternating um, and I can only take equipment down down the, the wider the, the 1.6 meter row which is about five feet right and and the other one it's, yeah. it's a hand management to keep things from getting too entangled yeah, <laughs> yeah. we had a, an exceptional um, uh, mower that could we fit down that one meter row, and mm -hmm. just it was a hand mower though, so it was a big pain in the power, power yeah, yeah, power yeah. mower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it finally wore out. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's it is it is it is it is been very challenging. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, the attention was we we liked full flavored Pinot Noirs. Um, you know, we're fine with with lighter styles. Um, I thought David let get got very light wine that had a lot of complexity mm -hmm. and that's he knew um, the art of that yeah he knew the art of that uh -huh. and um but we tend to make the bigger style pinot noirs although depending on the vintage uh, yeah, I see. sometimes a lot of structure yeah structure yeah and not, not like a california big it's just kind of has a lot of depth and we're looking for those yeah. long finishes yeah we're not looking for big huge fruit <laughs> we, we want that depth and that complexity that oregon wines have mm -hmm. that go on and on and on and yeah. and you remember them yeah yeah kevin chambers asked me one time why, why are you doing this the high density stuff I mean, it's just very expensive I, he couldn't understand it and, and and rightfully so and but but um we we said well we we creating our own sort of flavor profile niche in the marketplace and to be different uh 
Um, and, and that's what we've done. We, we have a, a real good uh, base of customers who, who appreciate um, aging wines. I mean, that, that's really what we're chasing. We're chasing uh, the, the being able to have enough structural component coming from the vineyard, from coming from the grapes, that allows a wine to uh, develop that over time and then holds. And uh, all of our wines really hold, have hold, held well for 20 years or more. And so, uh, and we have customers who are willing to age. Now we realize society's changed now and, and everybody kind of wants to do anything right away and, and uh, nobody has a seller. And, uh, but there's still people out there that, that kind of mm -hmm. appreciate your, and so we've kind of shifted a little bit and you know, we, we age our wines for them, and we uh, we will sell them on futures uh, so they can access them if they want to put them in their basement, get them at a at a good price. But mainly, we actually bring out the wines after four, five, six years, which is really unusual for Oregon. And and then that's when they're beginning to really taste. They have to sort of mm -hmm. that structure now is integrated. It's it's much more approachable in its flavors. Uh, and 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 you know that's not you, you know you don't you can't walk into too many tasting rooms and say well you know uh, oh look at all these older wines that you you can actually purchase we have a long list of older wines so, uh, yeah and our our first vintage was 1994 and um, we got 72 cases <laughs> out of those young vines it was what maybe two acres mm -hmm. of uh, Pomard and Colmar 538 and um, they were very that was a very dry year mm, and dry. and the berries were about the size of a little bit bigger than a pea. <laughs> <laughs> a little extracted on Not that Not a young pea, an older pea, but still. Um, yeah, so it was very extracted. Um, but we haven't tasted one for a while, but the last time we tasted it, it's still holding up. Yeah, holding up great. So yeah. um, It took a while to come around. Yeah, it and, took a while to come yeah, around. So we, we realized that patience was very important. But, you know, we, uh, I think... Uh, you, you know, one important thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that uh, we we kept our our day jobs probably for, for you know for a couple different reasons. One is we really enjoy what our careers we were trained in. Uh, Jill's very passionate about uh, conservation, and and is, is even though she's retired, she's still active. The, the governor appointed her to be on the Fish and Wildlife Commission. She's now serving no, on that. No, the Senate appointed me. Oh, the the Senate governor nominated me. Nominated. Okay, all right. <laughs> Get that government stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah and um, and even though I recently retired from the National Park Service, I'm still doing work for them, and I'm on a county um, task advisory force to uh, help them with vegetation roadside management. Um, so just kind of giving back to the community and 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 kind of do these things. And Jill's president of the of the AVA. So we, you know, if, so the kind of the yeah, Mick Carl. Uh, yeah, I'm a Carl. So the you know the what we what that kind of did is is that we really did not want to walk away and go full force into the wines. We've kind of we reached somewhere in that 2,000 case and last felt that we could. You know, we could handle it. We've mm -hmm. pulled back because of distribution a little bit since then, because of all those woes. But uh, th that, uh, you know, whatever we could handle and still keep the full-time job. But what's important about that is that 
uh, kind of reduced stress in our lives because we still had the financial resources, but we were going to need to do that because we were making these wines that we had to sit on for many years <laughs> before we could actually sell them. So it was almost by default that, that uh, we really needed to kind of retain that, that extra income, but it, it wasn't really all about extra income. It was about that we were very passionate about um, the, the things we were doing, especially in conservation and mm -hmm. Uh, and, the, and I was more into the science and the conservation. Joe was more into sort of the policy management end. And, uh, and we have kind of great overlap with those kind of those two topics. Uh, we have a lot, of, a lot in common. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then, um, yeah, so yeah, the, sort of the patience game uh, it was, was, mm -hmm. was, was, was really important. But the, this labor market has affected everybody. I mean, yeah. including us. We yeah. lost our two part-time workers, field workers. The family had been with us for this, 28 years. Yeah, this year yeah. when they went to a bigger winery, which I don't blame them because <laughs> we couldn't provide them with the year-round year living that they needed. And we shared them with the, the um, Yamhill vineyards across the way there. And, you know, there would be months they wouldn't be working. And they have kids. So, you know, we understand why they left. but. That's another reason why our vineyard's kind of crawling all over the place, <laughs> because it's just uh, Mark and uh, a couple of friends, yeah. couple, couple of friends helping out. It's been a great experiment. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I really actually have liked how the vines have responded. They, they actually are looking good. They just need a little. They grab him in little, the vineyard. Like a little TLC. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, yeah this, this vintage is not exactly one where you. It's a head scratcher of vintage, but we don't need to go deep down there because of the yeah. kind of the freeze that hit all of Oregon. So, yeah. Yeah, and we're we're um, also selling wine in in Washington. Uh, Purple Cafe has been using us for a few years now, four or five years oh, as yeah, their four vintages, something like that. Yeah. Three vintages, yeah. As their house wine, and um, and we can distribute to a few states. We have mm -hmm. California customers, or a lot of Oregon customers, some Washington customers and a few across across the country seem to have a few in Florida, which is a real pain to ship to because <laughs> <laughs> this is, you could only ship like two months of the year. So yeah, but, the southern tier is really difficult to work with. If you yeah. want to make sure that the wines are taken well taken care of, there's hardly any time you can really actually ship to them. Yeah, but there's kind of a continuing story of getting a distributor and then they either get sold or to a bigger distributor. Uh, we were distributed in Arizona for a while and then they, they sold to another yeah. one. We were distributed in Washington for a while. They got, you know, bigger and bought and also there was a recession and, you know, so it was all these. Yeah, it happened every, I think every yeah. state. <laughs> yeah, every state we've gone to, something yeah, like that. It's happened, exhausting. So. It really is exhausting to kind of, you start up these relationships and then all of a sudden it just kind of takes a right turn. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. and so we've, we've actually pulled back and on, uh, we're trying to now just mostly direct sales to customers, mm -hmm. private labels. Uh, we have a number of restaurants and, and um, like the, Jill mentioned, the, the Purple Cafe and we have some locally here that we, we make um, uh, their, their wines. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of a, you know, that's a little bit more of a, um, in a way, it's kind of fun because you develop a, a different kind of relationship with kind of a single customer. 
Uh, and you know they get they get good value uh, on what you're providing to them because they're not getting it through the three tier system. But it's, yeah, so we've been kind of you know shifting and adapting over time, uh, and we've gotten a lot smaller. Uh, you know, we used to be at, uh, we bought grapes from a couple of our neighbors, and we've pulled back on that. Mainly as as kind of time went on after the 2008 recession, which things got a little. You know, there's just a whole consolidation in the wine industry, harder to sell wine, mm -hmm. and a lot happened after that. And so we, uh, you know, we, these are our good friends, and it was very hard to not buy wines, buy their grapes anymore because they've been our neighbors for 15, 20, 30 years. And uh, now we just do estate, and and even there we're uh, we're just. Yeah, we're just kind of focused on the estate, which pretty much puts us at about a thousand cases a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, thousand twelve hundred. Yeah, yeah. So in the in the in the journey from planting and, and, and first bottling wine to now, uh, tell me about the process of of learning viticulture, learning winemaking for yourselves. You mentioned the kinds of wines you wanted to make, the niche in the market, the the the, the kind of the interesting planting design. Uh, what were the biggest steps for you in terms of feeling like you had you had viticulture kind of you understood viticulture, understood winemaking, understood how to do what you wanted to do to produce the product you wanted to make? Mm. <laughs> oh my, um, yeah. Well, on the viticulture end, I think we probably have covered pretty good and and talked about what we've done in the vineyard. Well, but, you you there was this book. Yeah. That yeah. that the wine industry with OSU put out back in the 80s? Yeah, there was the, the Oregon Grape Rose Guide. That was, yeah. a, that was a good, very good resource. Yeah. Uh, and plus we had neighbors to kind of kind of talk about, right. uh, uh, about and, you know, and sharing crews. And there was the Hort Society. Hort Society, I mean, a lot of, we went to a lot of scientific yeah. meetings together. Yeah, one thing I, I wanna bring up also is that when we started, there was maybe 50 wineries in the whole state. <laughs> and we would have these, um, we were members of the Yamhill County Wine Growers Association, and um, and they would have, we'd have picnics at Rex Hill or someplace else, and everybody yeah. knew each other. And yeah, it was great. Yeah, just their kids were there, you know, and it was uh, it was all kind of a family affair. Yeah, yeah. and uh, of course the wine industry now is, you know, we're getting more corporations coming in, um, but uh, most of them I'd say have been trying to fit into this Oregon cooperative, you know, effort. Mm -hmm. And even even the, you know, existing wineries who have been here for a long time, who've, you know, gotten bigger, they're still into that cooperative mode. So it's, but, you know, it's changed from, what, 900 wineries now from 50 when we started. And, and it, you know, when we started, and a lot of the other people that you've been interviewing um, who've been around for, you know, 20, 30 years. It was real easy for families, for just a couple people, you know, one maybe had a job or they both had jobs, just to start uh, out in this business out of passion. And uh, I'd say that that's, there's still people doing that. It's hard. Um, a lot of young people, yeah. Especially but, for the land perspective. Yeah, for the land, land is so expensive yeah. now, but they, if they can buy grapes, um, and they can set up at another winery. You know, that's what, where we're making our wine is we're a winery within a winery. Mm -hmm. 
and um, we're, we started out as grower sales privilege license, but now we're, we've, for a number of years since 07, I think, mm -hmm. we've been a winery within a winery. Um, so that's, that's an option for people, and so a lot of people can start out in the business, um, but they wouldn't have um, land for quite a while, probably. Yeah, the land. Yeah, and, and if you really want to control, sort of the the um, the quality of the grape production end of it, which which is what we really wanted to do, mm -hmm. um, that becomes a little bit more challenging for the new people getting started, and they're they're pretty much at the mercy of what the grower is willing to negotiate with you about, and and what kind of things you can tweak in their vineyard in terms of either. Uh, you know, crop loading or going organic or who knows what. Uh, you know, it's a whole long list. And um, so, yeah. Well, I, I think mm -hmm. that the, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer a little bit more of the uh, some additional sure. things on the question. Uh, so we we um, we we grow uh, four varieties. Yeah, mm -hmm. we go Muscat, Pinot Noir, about ten different clones, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dolcetto. And then the latecomer in that is Tempranillo. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, they each have their own kind of journey with uh, how we, uh, you know, approached the production end of it. Uh, certainly the most challenging is Pinot Noir. I mean, and, and, you know, we, we were just having a, a barrel tasting last night and, and we, we barely agreed on anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was remarkable. And it was just the same story year in yeah. and year out. Uh, to try his, to find his number ones or best was <laughs> my number two and a plus or something. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, you know the the whole the whole concept of uh, and and then you know the other varieties. You know, it, there's just no disagreement. In fact, there there's very even very once you taste them a couple times in the barrel, there's really not a lot of reason to try them much again until you get near bottling because they kind of have this and they go right like this and you pretty much know where they're going. Um, you've already kind of figured out which ones are going in either if you have a, a two-tier of, 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 of wine, you can, you know, we have a superiority for our Dolcetto, we can already figure out where they're going. Um, but with Pinot, it's just like up and down, up and down, and sometimes mm -hmm. we do these tastings back-to-back, -back, day, day, day one, day two, um, taking samples out, and of course they're changing between days, all the things we liked the first day, they're not. They're they're now down in the, kind of the lower tier of the second day, and so so you have you know this accumulated data. These are blind tastings that we're collecting from you know for three months or four months, and you just look at it at the end and go like, you know what to what to do. Well, usually what we do is put more emphasis on the more. Uh, the later stuff and try to find some kind of commonality or agreement on our palates. <laughs> we do have different palates. I tend to, to um, I think I like a little more fullness on the wine. Yeah, I think you you like a little bit brighter fruit. And so the, so the blending of our palates is really, uh, I think, <laughs> makes a better wine uh, uh, than, than one individual <laughs> alone. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the so the Pinot is, is challenging. We, 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 we make um, uh, a an older block, our first planting, it's called Vendange Selections Pinot Noir. Uh, it used to have a little bit of Colmar 538 in it, but it doesn't anymore because the Colmar 538 has since passed on. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's our only single clone or single site uh, block in our, in our, among, among the wines that we make for, for Pinot. 
And then uh, we make a reserve, which is always a big blend, no dominant particular, any particular clone. It's usually about eight clones or more. Uh, whatever clones are showing the best for that particular vintage. And then, uh, and then we occasionally make one called uh, seven, Reserve 777114 when those two clones will show themselves unique enough for uh, to bottle them separately from from the rest of it. You know, we don't have customers saying, "Well, it's a lot like that one." You don't, you don't really want to do that. Uh, and what we found is, sort of in the warmer vintages, we we may not make that though, those clones because that they don't really express themselves as uniquely as they do in the more um, I won't call them cooler years, but just in the years where it just it isn't super hot, mm -hmm. like a, a 2015. Um, and then, uh, and then we have a kind of an entry level, which is also a big blend of a lot of clones. Our, our Ian Hill Carlton, uh, and so that's kind of what we do with, with Pinot. But uh, Dolcetto was another journey. That, that mm -hmm. was uh, that was that was a really interesting variety. Very difficult to to harness in the vineyard to figure out how to crop load it. I mean, it has these gigantic clusters. They're like could be a pound each. And uh, you could fit five Pinot clusters into a into a Dolcetto cluster, uh, and so ba balanced pruning um, and 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 balanced management in the vineyard was was it took a, a number of years to figure that out, uh, and uh, and then we did a lot of the propagation ourselves early mm -hmm. on, and uh, and got it up to about I don't know a thousand vines or more, and made a couple barrels, and this was ninety. Six or 90, 98, 99, and 2000 mm -hmm. is when we really seriously looked at it commercially. We had some experimental wines before that, and uh, and everybody liked it. It was like, wow, you know, this is like another great component that Oregon could, could really do. It, it never has actually taken off, um, but uh, we've, it's been a solid seller for us for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. uh, you, and it's a hand sell. People come to the taste room, they say, this is like, well, this is terrific, mm -hmm. and um, and and it's and we price it just like they do in, in Italy. It's it's meant to be an everyday wine. You'd have it with your you know your weekday pasta and uh, and but it took a it took a long time to figure out um, in the winery um, the 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 first the, the the earlier batches were a little too rustic. Um, natural yeast didn't work all that well. Um, the uh, using some of the Pinot Noir yeast didn't work that well, and then so we we finally were, were playing. I uh, finally was playing around with some yeast, and, and this one, oh boy, this one really it was meant to bring out a lot more kind of fruit character, and it has just been uh, made solid dolcettos ever since that. It's been smooth sailing, uh, just made really really beautiful uh, beautiful wines. Mm -hmm. uh, Muscat has been an interesting journey. Mm -hmm. uh, we've made. Um, uh, ice wines from it. We've made white ports, which distributors wouldn't carry. So we had to. <laughs> and we found out the hard way. They had, it took years to sell out of the tasting room. Uh, but it, it, uh, we just pulled one out the other day. It's still tasting great uh, mm -hmm. from the '98, '99 vintage. Uh, we, for some reason or other, uh, blended it with a little bit of Chardonnay a few years, uh, and that that was kind of an interesting wine, uh, a little bit on the sweet side. We said, well, why are we doing this? I mean, we could sell it. A lot of people liked it, but we wouldn't drink it because we don't like sweet wines. Uh, and the ports the ports were dry, dryish, uh, you know, just a hint of sugar. They're more like a sherry type, uh, dry sherry. Uh, and then, um, and then we finally, uh, I finally, uh, I finally said to Jill, you know. 
I, I don't really have patience for white wine. I'm really a red wine uh, maker. Can I tell what happened to you? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> You're sure? Yes, I'm oh, sure. Okay. Uh, we would have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, no. That, That'll I, be I, off I, record. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Let's just say I I, bl uh, I blew up a bladder on a press, and and uh, and I couldn't hear for a couple of days. <laughs> a small press, and. Um, it, it, it did other things. It did other things. Scattered yeah. seeds everywhere all over my body. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and I, I think I just had had enough of white wine at that point. And I, 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 you know, I said, I know some. I know a guy who, who I really admire what he does with white wines. Excuse me. I, uh, and uh, <laughs> control yourself. <laughs> the uh, uh, and that's. Uh, uh, Brian O'Donnell down at, uh, at Belpont, he really is passionate about white wines. He does a great job with them. And so we developed a partnership for the Muscat. And uh, what we did is that we would uh, make these uh, outstandingly good uh, Muscats in the vineyard, blend of Muscat, Atenel, and early Muscat, about 30, 60. And we would bring them down to Brian, and then he would work his kind of shepherding and magic in the vineyard, and and then we would split, divide up the the the, uh, the proceeds in terms of the the wines in the bottle, and we would each sell the uh, the Muscat, and uh, that's been a, a 16-year partnership, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, we get together every few years and taste old Muscats, and we, it's amazing how some of them have been lasting a decade or more, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and a lot of that I think. You know, the crazy thing is we planted the muscat at high density. It's over 2,000 an acre. And Joel Myers looked at us when he brought the cuttings over. He said, you're going to plant these at high density? Why are you doing that? <laughs> well, you know, that in Italy, they, they, they plant them at a high density. And I think you might get a little more structure, flavor out of it. And they're, they're really good. Um, God, they're great eating grapes, too. Yeah. <laughs> especially uh, the early muscat. Yeah, especially yeah. the early muscat. But we never made... Uh, really a true dessert wine out of it or anything like that. We, we are passionate about a dry muscat, like to have an Alsace, where you'd walk into a restaurant and you'd order a trout dinner or some kind of, uh, something that would go well with a, with a white wine. And, uh, and uh, th that's one of their five really important white grapes in, in, mm -hmm. in, in Alsace. And so we've kind of worked towards in that direction. And of course, Brian is very passionate about the Alsatian grapes uh, as well. Um, just a terrific partnership and really enjoyed working with um, Brian and Jill. And then the last great variety is Tempranillo, which uh, that was our global climate change variety, although you could claim that Dolcetto is too because it actually comes in even later than, than Tempranillo. But that has a really interesting story. Uh, nobody in the Willamette Valley, I mean, you had Abacella uh, come in and, and they put uh, Tempranillo on the map in Oregon. Uh, great wines from the Roseburg area, Umpqua Valley, and and he then helped popularize that as sort of a, a signature Southern Oregon variety. Well, we we kind of looked at that and went, you know, we'd love we went to Rioja, we love Tempranillo, we could plant it someday, but yeah, maybe the time isn't right. Uh, but there was this thing that happened with the researchers down at the Medford Station, a guy named Porter Lombard used to uh, follow phenology of, of grapes. And he had planted uh, Pinot and Tempranillo side by side down there. And for years and years and years, Pinot and Tempranillo would ripen at the same time. 
And I heard that he would tell us that in the 80s. And I went, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And uh, so fast forward to about 2005, uh, we planted a little experimental block of a couple rows of Tempranillo. And uh, it looked like it was doing pretty good, at, but we never got to the point of actually making any experimental wine out of it because we got to 2008. And we, being in the uh, natural resource field, uh, we're very sensitive to sort of climate change. It's, it's in front of us all the time uh, in terms of uh, conservation of species and uh, habitats. And it was very clear to us that we had arrived um, at a moment when climate change was just beginning to really take off. And, and we just kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, why not? Why, why don't we try Tempranillo? And we are now on, uh, 14 was our first harvest. We had some m hits and misses, or 12. We didn't quite have enough in production from 2008 planting to, to make a separate uh, bottling out, out of it. 13, the, 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 uh, it was a tough vintage with uh, a lot of rain, and, and then uh, uh, the birds got it all, every, every drop yeah. of it. They, they like Tempranillo. They like, love Tempranillo. <laughs> so 14 was the first vintage. But the end of the story is every vintage we've been able to ripen Tempranillo really well. It makes a very compelling wine here in the northern Willamette Valley. Uh, and uh, I, I just really think it has a great future. And the funniest part of the end of the story is that it ripens. If, if you have the right clones, it ripens at the same time as Pinot Noir. And in fact, it interrupts Pinot Noir harvest because we have to go over here and harvest the Tempranillo <laughs> or it's not going to be able to, it will be too the sweet. The birds will get it. <laughs> the birds will get it, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it kind of fits in with sort of the experimental end of, we've always research and development kind of uh, thought process. We've always had kind of unusual grape varieties. Um, you know, who, who in the world would think of planting Dolcetto back in the early 90s? I, I think Ponzi <laughs> maybe had a little bit at that time, but nobody was planting Dolcetto at that time. And so that's been a long, a long journey uh, and an interesting one. Uh, I think I'd better stop talking. Huh? Well, I don't have any. He, he's the vineyard manager and the winemaker, so <laughs> that's yeah. your, your... Did that. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. <laughs> did. Since you both kept your careers uh, until fairly, fairly recently, I'd like to ask sort of about your kind of parallel career in, 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 natu in the natural sciences. Uh, Joe, we'll start with you. Tell me a little bit about the career path you took uh, outside mm -hmm. of wine and maybe some career highlights. Yeah. Well, yeah, I... I, uh, after working on um, spotted owls and the wolf study, I did um, a little bit more work for uh, Seattle City Light on um, uh, just finding spotted owls in some area that they they were maybe looking at putting a reservoir in, but they never did. Um, and I got my master's, and then I went to work for Washington Department of wildlife at the time now it's fish and wildlife but back then it was just wildlife and i was uh worked on habitat uh issues um there was a lot of uh incentives to put in uh hydro and there was people running around kind of like now with the with the solar they were running around wanting to put hydro everywhere and so there would be a stream running flat and they were going I'm, they're going to put hydro there and we're like no you're not you know <laughs> full of salmon steelhead and um i think one of the highlights uh 
was that uh, there was a um, one of these hydro developers wanted to put a hydro in on the Dosi Wallops River, which uh, runs out of the national park on the Olympic Peninsula and down to uh, through the national forest and down into the Puget Sound there and um, the Hood Canal, actually. And so we put on wetsuits. There was a con couple consultants, me and another fish, uh, a wildlife guy from the department, and we snorkeled down the Dosi Wallops River, which had these huge boulders in it. And um, at one point, and we had inner tubes, we had no helmets, and they, <laughs> these guys wanted to go over this waterfall. So we did, and they, they all sat in their inner tubes, and I put mine out in front of mine, and, and the water slammed my my back went like this. Oh. <laughs> I was okay, but the next waterfall we came to, I said, we're going around. <laughs> and you can walk barefoot in this old growth forest. It was just soft, you know, just no stickers, no, no blackberries. And um, so we, we made it all the way down and uh, we told them that Steelhead could pass up that river and they weren't gonna put their hydro on it. And um, so that was that. And then I, I went down to Vancouver, still with Washington Department of Wildlife, and became the, um, called the regional wildlife biologist. So I was in charge of the wildlife program for the, the uh, southwest region of, um, of the, I wasn't the, the head of, of the region. I was, worked for that person. And um, we, you know, had Mount St. Helens in the area, and um, we had, there was a big elk herd that, because the area was closed at Mount St. Helens when the hunting season came on, all the elk would run down into this area that was closed. <laughs> and they were going to, uh, Forest Service was gonna open it. They got their national monument there, and they were gonna open it to people coming and so the department was looking at, well, opening that area to special hunts mm -hmm. um, where somebody would have a, a tag just for getting one of the big bulls that were there. I mean, they were, they were huge, huge antlers. And, um, and interestingly enough, so we held public meetings about that, and there had been a, a student at University of Washington who had radio tracked the, the elk that had that were coming and going from there, and she knew exactly where where they were going. Um, but the hunters did not want to hunt them. They said, "No, we want to look at these elk. We want to have these elk. We know that they're there." And, and which was a total surprise to me because I I was proposing these hunting seasons. And so um, I asked uh, the researcher that I knew to tell us where the elk, how they moved, because the hunters had a diff completely different idea where uh, how they moved. But, um, and we decided not to open any season in that area. So for, for to show that those elk now, if you drive that road up to Mount St. Helens um, Visitor Center, you'll s often see them down in this one flat that they love to, to be in. So that was that was pretty interesting, um, and then the um, 
the department had a budget crisis and I was junior I was going to get my job was going to I was going to get bumped out of my job from somebody else losing their job mm -hmm. and so I just went and got a job at Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife in the habitat division and um, and I worked there uh, for the rest of my career I eventually became I was working on on watershed issues and I eventually became the um, I, and I worked on in-stream water rights a lot which were pretty controversial um, then I eventually became the division head of the habitat division and uh, that went on through about four or five different directors and then I um, had great staff who were working on hydro issues, energy issues, um, land use issues, uh, forestry issues, just kind of the, the whole gamut. We were working with all these other agencies to try to protect fish and wildlife habitat uh, or at least incorporate whatever plans people had into having some set aside or whatever, you know, for fish and wildlife. And um, and then uh, after, well, we adopted our daughter in um, 1995, and um, she was a newborn baby then. And I was still, had vineyard winery, now a new baby, um, and my job as a division head. And I finally kind of got burned out from that in, um, 2009. Well, yeah, uh, no, that's when you retired. No, yeah, 1999. Yeah. 1999, right about when um, the new Carissa crashed out off of <laughs> <laughs> off of the coast off of um, Coos Bay, yeah. and. Well, what really burned you out, I think, was the, the legislative part of it. We didn't yeah. need to go into details, but working with the legislature as a representative of the... Department of Fish and Wildlife, although I, I was backing off from that. But oh, yeah, yeah I, in the early days, I worked a lot informing the legislature, you know, showing them how these bills would affect fish and wildlife and that type of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so in 99, I, I had a halftime position in my division and so I uh, moved into it. <laughs> and, to raise a child. Uh, somebody, yeah, <laughs> to be able to have half time for a child who was in daycare and, um, and the winery. I figured, I, you know, that would help. And I was distributing wine, you know, on my off days and things like that. So, uh, and that went on for another 10 years. And as soon as I could... I, I was working a lot more on, on water rights and uh, also with vector control districts, which are interesting <laughs> districts that um, aren't everywhere in the state, luckily, but they go around spraying for mosquitoes in areas where there's more problems and they're spraying pesticides. And, you know, we had to... Directly into water. I had to learn all about <laughs> pesticides. Mm -hmm. Well, not directly into water, over water, over water a lot right. of times. But um, yeah, so spreading mouth ion and other things like that. So I learned a lot about pesticides during that time. And, uh, 
And then uh, the state let you get out at 58 um, to, could, to retire. So as soon as I reached 58, I retired. And uh, just that then just became my full-time job. Um, as well as the daughter, <laughs> yeah. which uh, the middle school and teenage years required a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah that was 2009 <laughs> when I retired. So, um, yeah, yeah, that it was obvious that you know once once child hits 13, <laughs> they're a little different than <laughs> when they were younger. But uh, so. Um, that's what I've, I've been, you know, managing the, the winery aspects, the distribution, the sales, um, and that type of thing, so. Amazing. <laughs> and Mark, tell us a little bit about your parallel career. Well, I, um, I think I, I mentioned early on that I was doing some research for the University of Washington, uh, fitting old growth forests. That was back when uh, we were just getting together, mm -hmm. and uh, and that eventually led to a uh, a job to work for the U.S. Forest Services Research Station, and I continued to uh, study I'm more of like an an ecologist, uh, focusing on a variety of different things. But my my passion in, in that position was the interplay between science and management, adapting scientific information and applying it to uh, things on the ground. Uh, and so I worked uh, very closely with kind of both branches, both the science branch and the management branch. And um, lo and behold, in, um, in 1994, was it? Uh, not, not, uh, not, yeah. Um, yeah, about 1994, uh, about when our first, first vintage was. Uh, the Northwest Forest Plan, which is kind of a legendary uh, land management planning uh, in, in among the natural resource agencies where um, the, the Clinton administration came in and put this huge overlay on federal lands extending from the uh, Washington border all the way down into Northern California to help uh, conserve um, species that were rapidly disappearing. And I did a, a variety of different uh, jobs with that. Um, I was in charge of one of their science groups. They had these things called adaptive management areas where they would put a, attach a scientist to them to help managers to, um, uh, rather than just going out and doing cutting or whatever they do in the forest, but also try to learn while you're doing it. So set up little experiments to, uh, to understand them. So that was a really fun job. It was very interesting. And I worked uh, primarily, I spent a lot of time down the Umpqua, uh, in and out of Roseburg. Uh, and so I got to know that culture down there, down in the Umpqua National Forest. And, uh, and then I also helped the, uh, the National Forest um, set up a, a long-term bird monitoring among uh, 10 national forests uh, looking at the neotropical migratory birds. And then I helped them on the science end of that and, and analyzing the data and, and, um, and training staff to go out and, and sample birds. Uh, then I kind of made a, a, a bit of a career shift. Uh, the, there was kind of a new aspect of the Northwest Forest Plan that was getting underway. And that was uh, 
rare, looking at uh, coming up with management strategies for rare species. So I ended up being the conservation biologist for the rare species part of the Northwest Forest Plan. And that was a crazy job. That, that involved uh, uh, understanding, uh, collecting information on, and understanding that information on over 400 species spread out through that whole area of, uh, I guess, probably 15 or 20 million acres. And um, it only took about three years to burn out on that job. And uh, eventually, <laughs> I, I uh, uh, it was fascinating, but it was it was hard, and uh, and I ended up uh, looking at working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and helping out on uh, a lot of their their um, science issues, and also uh, helping them out on a, on overseeing monitoring of one of their endangered species, and. Uh, and then I finished up the last 15, 16 years with uh, the National Park Service and uh, kind of did a full circle because all my uh, early work, I uh, did uh, some, uh, some work in Glacier National Park during my kind of research day, early research days, and I did some master's work in, in the Great Smokies working on European wild boar, and then, uh, um, then came up to the Northwest here and studied fires in Olympic and North Cascades and Mount Rainier National Parks. And then I kind of walked away from the Park Service because they didn't really have a very strong science component. Um, so <laughs> the Forest Service had a much more, more opportunities for, to be involved in uh, ecological science. And uh, then later on, they, the Congress uh, set aside some money for the parks to begin long-term ecological monitoring. And that's when I hooked up with the last 15, 16 years of my career with them. And, um, that was a, a very interesting time and adventure to be working uh, and helping out the parks because these are our national treasures and it's a, it's a humbling and, and honorable experience to, to help advance that, uh, our knowledge gain that society wants to know to make sure these parks are being kept into the, uh, the best we possibly can, managing them into the future. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. And I retired from that two years ago. <laughs> I don't know how we got all yeah. of the wine and the vineyard done in that journey. I, I and the child. And the child. I, I just can't. Yeah. I, I, I look back on it and I'm going like, that is just, a, who, yeah. who would design something like that? <laughs> yeah, we, we all, we both just go, how did we get all that yeah. done? <laughs> so it probably leads to a kind of a question like, well, how did we survive? Well, it's through, through kind of humor, patience, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, passions that we mm -hmm. had together. Partnership. Wine. Wine. Enjoying wine and food, so yeah. In partnership. In partnership, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what comes next for you two now? Well, we're getting up there in years. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there is there there is no succession plan because yeah. the daughter is uh, you never know. I mean, it could could change, but uh, I, I think I think actually considering her knowledge base and personality. To, for her to inherit this, all these headaches probably wouldn't be the best <laughs> idea. I think her life would be a lot simpler if, if she didn't uh, really move in that direction. She's so, more on the artistic side. Yeah, more on the artistic than and it requires. She said she'd hire a manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to need yeah. deep pockets for that. She has some common sense. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll take it a, you know, at a year at a time. Uh, obviously, you can't do it forever. Uh, you know, you've, you've interviewed a lot of people who have already, you know, said that I'm I, I passed my prime, and 
not necessarily from you know a wine perspective, but just sort of can, can the body sustain this? Uh, you know, the, and the, just the, the the pressures of not only what Mother Nature throws at you every year in terms of trying to grow the grapes, uh, but uh, the challenges of winemaking, and then the challenges of dealing with the business side of it, of the marketing and distribution, and uh, and that just sort of that changing changing landscape. At some point, you just go. You know, I, I'm exhausted, mm -hmm. and, and you know we're not there yet. But you know, one of these days we will be. No, we want to travel more, and you yeah. know, grapes are nine months of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then you sell them in the fall. You know, get that's where a lot of people buy wine. And I'd say grapes are actually ten months of the year. Ten months, yeah. Yeah, it's really November and December. Oh, and then the winemaking no. part of it. You know, yeah, you, you have to deal with it after you harvest. It's yeah, like we I'm just talking about the vineyard is the nine months. Yeah. Then the winemaking is oh, during that time, but then it gets intense for the next two months <laughs> after you're there done much touching the vineyard. Yeah. <laughs> we have this very select windows, like when we can go do something. Oh, maybe late December, early January before pruning season kicks in. And and uh, yeah, I'm I'm very passionate about the the, the pruning in winter. I, I, I we I've always pruned all our vineyards, and we we have over twenty thousand vines. So you kind of do the math. I've probably pruned over a half million vines over the years, <laughs> uh, and um, you know I just have some friends now that come out and help. But over the early years, I used to do all the pruning, and uh, you know and that's kind of you know where the wines made. And we, you know, you start the vintage in January. You're making decisions mm -hmm. about the balance of the of the grapes from the year before, and you look at how the vines did. And of course, with a high density, it's really hard to train uh, other people. Uh, vineyard workers to, to for that balance pruning to be able to look at the past, uh, the present, the future. You know, all those things are kind of are surrounding you. Just looking at a cane on a and 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 the last year's growth, mm -hmm. uh, and how many buds you want to leave for the future, especially when there's a lot of uh, competition going on between vines and uh, mm -hmm. and learning what you know that sweet spot is, the amount of the buds to leave. So he would he would do. The cuts, yeah, do the make cuts. the decisions. Then, when we had workers, they would come through, pull the brush, and um, you know, position the vine, tie the vines, and things like that. So now, we do, or particularly yeah. you, you do. Yeah, do, do all of it. But, uh, but that was that was quite a journey with a full-time job because it started in January. I only have weekends, and I get to about, you know, you have to be done by about March, the third week of March. And uh, and, and I go well. Well, I'm going to have to use some of my <laughs> vacation time to get it done again this year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was always it was always a struggle to, to finish mm -hmm. up in March. Um, and, and whether it was snowing, raining, uh, with a pineapple express, mm -hmm. you know, it was the weekend time. That was the only time I could go out there. So. So uh, he could go out there anytime now. <laughs> I go out there anytime now. It's great. <laughs> yeah. But but we did learn that you know. Mountaineering clothes are what you need <laughs> in the winter time. You know, uh, yeah. the the big boots that they use in Alaska and things like that. Yeah. Um, well, and actually, you know, working in you know, us, kind of that early day exposure to working on the Olympic Peninsula, no. you know, which you know, they get 150 inches of rainfall a year out there. Right. You know, going out here and you know, out in here, this winter rain out here, it's nothing compared to the Olympic Peninsula. <laughs> it's, it's a drizzle, even though people are going, wow, it's pouring. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, then the last question I have for you then is, uh, you mentioned you don't predict the future, and that's fair, but uh, <laughs> from what you, you've, you've talked about some of the changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry, so as you look ahead for the industry, uh, what do you maybe hope happens next, what, uh, or, or are there things you're sort of fearful of as you look ahead for Oregon's wine industry? You can have that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that um, we, our hope or is that it keeps uh, kind of the collegial atmosphere that it has as opposed to getting into more, you know, fighting fighting amongst ourselves or, you know, out, trying to outcompete. Uh, I know in the Yamhill Carlton area and what I've seen in some of the other areas and, you know, having the Willamette Valley Winery Association, having the, um, the sub-AVAs where the groups in each AVA are working together. Um, you know, we've, in Yamhill Carlton, we've had these tastings where, you know, we just had one in Bend and um, in all, pretty much almost all the owners were doing the tasting, Ken Wright, um, you know, whoever, whoever was there, they were owners and they weren't all just the small wineries. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so if, if the industry can keep that, I think it'll, it'll really be a benefit to the industry. Um, obviously the Oregon is now a, a international name, which is great for, for selling the wine, for sure, and um, having visitors come. We've had a lot more people visiting, um, even in the wintertime, mm -hmm. who, you know, coming from Texas or uh, the South or Florida or something like that. So I think that it's become a destination. You know, it's, it's not the, at the category of California, um, but we can, you know, it, if we can keep kind of uh, the interspersed agriculture that we have in, in Yamhill County, I mean, if you go to the Dundee Hills, there's, it's, it's kind of almost like California. There's vines almost everywhere. And, but um, in the rest of the Willamette Valley, it's a lot more interspersed agriculture, which I think helps people, you know, it, it's a lot more interesting to see. And so far, the, the valley floor isn't good for grapes, so <laughs> maybe so far until it, until some giant corporation comes in and says, "Oh, we're going to live on yeah. uh, Oregon's reputation and start growing them here in the flats and yeah. get twenty tons to the acre." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, then, and that may happen. Although you know, there's water issues here, mm -hmm. so I don't. There, you know, there's not abundant water available. You'd have to go buy it from somebody else, and. Um, it's it's pretty already maxed out for the whole growing season everywhere in Oregon. There's, uh, you know, even though the Willamette has dams, uh, those there's a lot of that water that's allocated to fish. So that's not going to go away for a long time. But I think, you know, I think that uh, the corporations can move in and, and uh, hopefully pick up on the culture here and not make uh, uh, the culture very different. Well, Oregon is very fortunate um, to uh, 
to have a 40 or to 50 year experiment with land use laws that mm -hmm. have helped um, retain land, make it available for the long term uh, for agriculture to thrive. And uh, hopefully that continues to, to, to mm -hmm. kind of pass the test of time. I'm sure there'll be more attacks on it as time goes on and, and tweaking. I mean, always that needs a little bit of tweaking to, to uh, but I think a lot of the early day grumbling about why well, I couldn't build on this piece of property, most of that has kind of been settled ground through a few um, measures, a few measures over the years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some give and take between the environmental groups and the, and the, and the folk and the farmers who want to develop their land. Uh, and hopefully we're on a right road for the future. That that would be good. I, 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 you know, there, there really is no other state in the United States that has a land use like, like we have here. And, and that's, um, and the Oregon wine industry is very fortunate because that, that keeps um, some of these smaller lots still available, uh, although you know they're getting pricey. But still, you know somebody can get into the business and and have a you know a 20 acre or 30 acre or 40 acre piece of land that uh, it would be available for um, for growing grapes on. And there's a lot of land out there that are just potential uh, that can grow grapes. I, mean, I was just driving down to Eugene yesterday and I stopped and saw a colleague um, up in up up. Up off of south of Monmouth, um, and, and that whole countryside there to the to the west of 99, there's like thousands of acres that could be planted in there. Really, just it's, it's just stunning, and it's really good land. Um, so, I mean, Oregon has a long, long future ahead of us of potential growth. It's not like uh, Bordeaux or Burgundy, where there's a line in the sand and you can't get any bigger. Uh, Oregon is not not like that at all, and it's still growing AVAs every year. <laughs> you know, every year you hear about well, there's another AVA. You know, like the newest one I think was Long Tom, mm -hmm. something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, Mount Pisgah, uh, and uh, we'll be hearing more of that in in, in the future uh, as we discover more kind of what I'll call niches, ecological niches where unique grapes or soils can, can grow. And I think climate change will probably provide uh, even more places at higher elevations that we, we didn't even consider 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, certainly climate change is, you know, you want to get into the kind of the future. Well, uh, this, that's a whole nother topic. We can look to places in the world where climate change is much more accelerated in grape growing regions than we are here. We're, we've actually been pretty buffered by it compared to other places. and. But if you look to those places and go, well, we could be like that in 10 to 15 years, it could be a little scary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know how, how, how long can a, a very climate sensitive grape like Pinot Noir endure uh, uh, longer seasons uh, where you'd be forced to bring the grapes in when it's still really hot? Uh, it's very clear to us that um, that the beauty of Pinot Noir is you want to be able to harvest it when we have cool nights. Cool nights it really brings on some flavor components. And, and we, we harvest, we don't use any, any equipment in terms of measuring sugar, pH, or anything. It's all by flavor. We go out and taste the grapes on a daily basis and bring them in and go, oh, that, you know, the flavor of that juice isn't quite right yet. And, um, and so what happens with climate change 
affecting that is it's going to it's going to it's going to bring the season in. We're going to have more and more harvest earlier in in September, and they're seeing this in Burgundy already. And what what what's driving that then is that the sugars are moving so fast that you to even make. Uh, something that's balanced, you've got to bring them in. But the flavors aren't developing at the same rate, and, and Pinot Noir needs to have that sugars and um, the flavor development on the same page to make a really a very high quality, uh, high quality wine. And so we're, the, there's going to be, have to be a lot of experimental things to see how can we push back on climate change to be able to make the harvests uh, back on where they should be naturally occurring. Uh, I don't know what 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 needs to be done. Change rootstocks that ripen later. Uh, heavier crop loads, maybe. Uh, you know, maybe maybe smaller canopies. Uh, you know, there's just a whole host of things that virus. Like our friends virus <laughs> virus causes. You know, the sugars to be a little lower. Um, you know, the folks down at OSU have got uh, you know a zillion potential research projects that they they can help us out in terms of what we call adapting to climate change. And uh, and I think that's one of the biggest issues in the future that that the industry is going to be facing is you know how do we retain what has made Oregon, Oregon, or I shouldn't say Oregon, Oregon, but at least the Willamette Valley, the Willamette Valley, uh, how do you keep that in play at the quality level that we're going to have when they're projecting you know, a couple degrees increase in temperature over time, and there's a whole host of things that, that cause you know, dryness, change in seasons, so on and so forth, freezes early on like we had this year. It's just, it, the list goes on, you know, so. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's all the questions that I have for all right. you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? D didn't we already talk a lot? <laughs> <laughs> you did, yeah. <laughs> no questions. All right. We yeah. rest our case. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both so much sure. for your time and your stories and your hospitality uh, out here today. Uh, and uh, thanks for being part of our project. And we'll let you off the hook. All, all right. right. Thank, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.